literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to Austin Found. This is part two of a short series here with Lonnie Lamont. I'm J.B. Hager. I'm Michael Barnes. And Lonnie is here as well. And on the previous episode, if you haven't heard it, go listen to that first because we got a bunch of the background of the thousands and thousands <laughs> of Limons and Estradas all over Austin. I want to talk more about you, Lonnie, and sort of your path. I know you were maybe one of, if not the first in your family to go to college and going out of state to go to college. I'm definitely not the first, but I'm probably one of a few during my generation. And, and honestly, I don't know who the first person was to go to college in our family, but uh, I know one of them who had an impact on me, especially when I found out, was my cousin. They call him Big John, John Limon, and he's uh, older than my dad. He's passed away now, but he was a football player at the University of Houston. And yeah, and Ernie Nieto, who <laughs> M- Michael knows, founder of the National Hispanic Institute, was playing basketball at, at U of H while, while my cousin was wow. a linebacker there. And he said, that guy, he said he had no neck, and when he hit you, he was probably <laughs> going to break your face mask. <laughs> and, uh, and he was also known as a really well-known uh, softball, uh, fast-pitch softball player. But, you know, Big John, you know, for being in that era, you know, at that time, uh, it was a big deal for a Hispanic to go to college. And you went to a pretty good school, right? <laughs> it was okay. It was okay. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I went to the University of Notre Dame. So go Irish. Uh, <laughs> I, I, still, I still bleed orange, and I still do the Longhorn sign. You know, so if, as long as we're not playing the Longhorns, I cheer for the Longhorns. Why Notre Dame? <laughs> you know, uh, I grew up in East Austin, and obviously you know, my family's been here forever, and you, know, you hear UT nonstop. And um, I went to something at that time at Johnston called the Liberal Arts Academy. And, um, you know, it was hard. It was hard. But well, one thing that we had, we had great teachers. And those teachers taught us how to think for ourselves. And they said, if you don't want to go to UT, then find another place to go. I said, well, I don't even know if I want to go to college. And they said, oh, you're going to college. <laughs> it's just a matter of where. So I had a great teacher. Her name was uh, Carol Hovland. And Dr. Hovland gave me a book. And she said, I need you to come in at 7 o'clock for like three or four days straight. And she gave me a book. And she said, just start looking through it. It was a book of every college in America. And I said, what do I, how do I choose? She said, there's profiles. Look at the profiles and see what sticks out to you. So, you know, I looked at, I looked at the profiles and Notre Dame was heavily Catholic. There weren't that many Hispanics. I didn't even know where Indiana was, <laughs> but I had heard of Notre Dame. I, I'll be honest. I didn't know who Newt Rockney was. I didn't know much about Notre Dame football, but I've heard about it. And so I thought, okay, it's Catholic, you know, I'll apply there. And then, uh, you know, and I looked at schools in state, like Trinity and San Antonio, because, and again, that was thanks to Dr. Hovland, who said, hey, that's a great liberal arts education. You should look at that. I would have never known about it had she not taken a, an interest in me. You know, and at the time, maybe you can paint a picture. Like, you know, I'm just a little bit older than you, and, uh, and I w- went to Westwood in Northwest Austin. Oh, yeah, I know Westwood, yeah. Johnson did not have a lot of resources. <laughs> did not. Uh, up until it, even when I left, we didn't have a lot of resources. It, it, was, it was probably hard to... Uh, to get out of there. And, you know, and, and I say that because I, I worked with a, a, a gentleman who, who it was a, a motorsports complex just sure. east of Johnston. 
And we sat down, before it changed to Memorial, we sat down with some people there because we wanted to do some training for kids. You know, one person gets to be the driver in a car, but there's 20 other people that make it work. Yeah. And they were very, very real and honest with us that, you know, a lot of these kids at Johnston need to go to work while they're in high school to support their family. And they just can't. They can't do a, in, an internship, basically. They have to go make money. Was it like that when you were in school? Sure. For some, a lot of the kids? Yeah. I mean, I knew people that left. As soon as we finished, they couldn't play football because they had a job. I mean, I'll give you a great example. Uh, and he did play football. And I don't know how he did it. But Constable George Morales, he's the constable for Precinct 4. He went to Johnston. And, uh, and he was also working at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Most mm. people didn't know that. Mm. He was doing that to help his family. So, you know, but he was a great football player. So he continued you know, and and basically try to do it all. I mean, he was he was burning the midnight oil. So there were a lot of kids like that, but some of them decided to pass on extracurricular to make money because you know they were helping the family. They were they wanted a car, you know, anything you wanted, you had to provide for. You know, I was very fortunate. My mom and dad, we were probably lower middle class, but they were still great providers. But I, and I think everybody had a family that was doing their best. You know. And that's one thing about East Austin. We were very communal. We helped each other. But, you know, at the end of the day, there were a lot of struggles. So, yeah, a lot of kids, they were looking for ways to either help themselves or their families or they were looking for a vocation. We had a great uh, auto mechanics department there at, at Johnston from way back from when my dad went and uh, and printing program, too. So, you know, you get a legacy there and then people are like, hey, if I go become a printer, maybe I either own my own print shop or I can make this much money an hour doing this. And it's very noble because, you know, they found something that a lot of people that we know that are friends of our families built really successful businesses off of the auto mechanics industry and the printing industry. You know, it doesn't mean that they didn't want to go to college, but maybe they didn't have the same opportunity, but they made the best with what they had. Both your parents were successful in their fields. Talk about them. Sure. My, my mom, I'll talk about my mom first. My mom, her father was the owner of Estrada Cleaners, and she worked at the state for many years. She worked for Gary Morrow when he was uh, the land commissioner. My grandfather had a building next door that used to be, used to have a bar in it, had an arcade. One of those businesses was run by my mom's brother. And when the building became vacant, my mom's like, dad, you know, I've always wanted to open up a, a florist. You know, would you be open to, you know, working with me so I can open up the florist at that location? And he said, you go get trained and you come back and I'll help you open it. And he did. And so she opened up Diana's Flower Shop. That's a great story. Yeah. And she opened it up 38 years ago at the beginning of the pandemic, so now 40. And she ran that flower shop with my grandmother, Hilda Lopez at the time, Hilda Estrada, ran it with her for those 38 years and a, a number of other people that were great employees and, and family members. But, you know, that was her dream and my grandpa helped her to achieve that dream. So, and your dad? My dad. Funny enough, my dad, you know, we don't talk about my dad much, but but he's such an interesting character. My dad used to work building mobile homes, okay? And he did it, again, you get, in, you get in through family, right? So he worked building mobile homes, and then he worked for Austin Title Company when there was only one title company in Austin. And that was a good friend, and he's a good friend of our family to this day, Mr. Wayne Talley. He employed probably four or five of my dad's brothers, and they all ran stuff for the, you know, to the law offices and title, you know, to the courthouse. And uh, when my dad was doing that, he met a lady at the Travis County Courthouse. And her name was Miss Bill. And Miss Bill was, you know, really nice, you know, country lady. You know, she was from the country and she would always call my dad shrimp. Hey, shrimp, how you doing? You know, (laughs) my dad was short, (laughs) you know. And uh, and one day my dad stopped coming in 
So uh, she said she asked his brother, "Hey, where's where's Shrimp? Why hasn't he come in?" And he's like, "Well, he need he's he's gonna have a kid, so he's gonna go back to building mobile homes." And she's like, "Tell him to call me." And so she hired my dad to work at the Travis County Courthouse. He was probably one of the first uh, Hispanics to ever work at the Travis County Courthouse. Again, didn't doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was at the time. And I know he was the fir- one of the first Hispanic court clerks in Travis County. So he served as a court clerk That's for one of the judges. Too. It is. It really is. It is. We just didn't think about it. You yeah. know, for him it was just a job, and he slowly made friends. And then he eventually worked in the um, in the district clerk's office, and he worked under a number of different uh, district clerks. The last one being Amalia Rodriguez Mendoza. But before that, it was John Dixon, and then before that, it was O.T. Martin. I mean, he worked for three different district clerks, and he was a guy. If you if you were a a new attorney, if you were an old attorney, but you needed stuff in the in his division uh, that he ran, my dad knew where every single paper was, and that's when stuff was manually filed. So he was a <laughs> file clerk, man. But he, <laughs> but my dad, um, I mean, he really made it his <laughs> his uh, everything. And so, really proud of my mom and dad for both, you know, making a really good life for me and my brother. I want to go back just a little bit more on your education <laughs> because you went to a lot of different schools and you you. <laughs> You got to know people in a lot of different neighborhoods, which I think is part of your personality. Yeah, I, I, I consider it a blessing. Um, you know, if you think about when I started going to elementary, it was in the late 70s. You know, I'm, I'm going to guess this. I was born in 73, so it would have been 79, 80, probably 80. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're talking about 16 years after civil rights, right? So they were still trying to integrate the schools. Well, because Hispanics and African Americans were heavily concentrated in East Austin, I mean, basically, you had to take us and split us up and send us all over the all over town, and so that integration started to happen, and we got bust everywhere. So I went. Uh, I started at Go Valley. Well, actually, I started before that at St. Martin's Lutheran School. Even before that, El Buen Pastor, which was preschool, <laughs> El Buen Pastor in East Austin, still there. I went to St. Martin's Preschool over off of Fifteenth Street. Right. From there, went to kindergarten on through third grade at Go Valley in East Austin. And then busing got really intense, and they're like, we're shipping you off in fourth grade to Cunningham Elementary off of Manchaca Road uh, in South Austin. You know, you had to get up at 6 in the morning just to get to school. And so then from there, uh, I stayed there till sixth grade. And then seventh grade, they're like, you're going to go to Burnett Junior High School over off of Olin Road in North Austin. Oh, man. And then we went there one year, and then like, well, we're switching the districts again. And now you're going to go to Lamar Middle School over off of Burnett Road in North Austin with the Allendale kids. And then after that, you get to come back to Johnston. (laughs) And and so uh, I finally came back to East Austin, you know, after all those years as a ninth grader. And then I was asked to be a part of the Liberal Liberal Arts Academy based on my academic grades, et cetera. And I almost said no because that was too hard. And it was my mom that pushed me to, to do it. So I think your career is interesting to talk about too, because uh, before we rolled today, I was like, I think we met before, and <laughs> and and I remember, you know, you were at Latin Works, yeah. which in in and this was a, an I may screw this up, but it's an agency that really specialized in in how to reach a, a, a more of a diverse audience, yep. right? You know, I was in radio, and I know we had some meetings there, but talk about that and how that has changed because big brands did not know how to reach yeah. a Hispanic community. And then especially sometimes second, third, fourth generation. That's like, right. How do you talk to them? And that's what you're, you specialize in. It is. It is. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, you don't automatically get into Hispanic advertising because you're Hispanic. But what happens is that, 
if you're in an agency, like I was at Leo Burnett first in Chicago, and they're like, hey, you're Hispanic. You have a Spanish last name. You're working on Latin America. And I'm like, actually, I'm from here. But um, so I, worked, I actually serviced all of Latin America, you know, in Spain. And, you know, it helped my Spanish tremendously, which was good. But um, then there was a young guy. Named Compared Tom. to your Austin homegrown Spanglish? Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. There was no Spanglish. You had to have business Spanish. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, it's, it still isn't as great as it could be, but it was tons better. But there was a young guy at the time named Tony Dieste. He was in his 30s. He had started his own agency, and he asked me to come join him because he had a vision for what marketers needed to do to reach people like me, mm. second, third generation, even first generation who lived kind of in two worlds, you know? Yeah. Uh, when you're home, you may speak Spanish, you may speak Spanglish, you may speak English, but your parents might speak Spanish or Spanglish, and you live in this kind of mixed world. And, uh, you know, same thing happened with the Germans, with the Czechs, everybody that yeah. came here. But for us, I think it's it stayed stronger because of the neighborhoods, because of the constant migration, et cetera. So what I do today is uh, I'm a managing director with Dieste and uh, actually went from Latinworks to another agency and then Dieste. But when I worked at Latinworks, you know, we worked on great brands. And what we were doing was, I think, on the cutting edge at the time. They still do uh, a lot of cutting edge work. At their agency is now called 30 Year. You know, at that time, we were really bringing in a lot of young kids from UT, from Texas State, from all over. And we were doing tremendous work for big brands. I mean, you name it, Pepsi, Anheuser-Busch, Frito-Lay, Domino's Pizza. What were some um, of the most common mistakes they were making trying to reach? Translating. Trans- <laughs> tra- tra- okay. Well, not, not just translating, but dubbing. It wasn't even a mistake. It was just poor marketing. <laughs> you know, you would have somebody on the client side that would say, look, I don't have a lot of money to do a million-dollar commercial, or even a $400,000 commercial. That's what it would take to produce it. So they're like, look, take the general market spot. And yes, I know that girl's blonde, and I know that the guy is African-American, but we're going to go ahead and dub it into Spanish. Can we get the lip syncing as close as possible? And I'm like, no. And, uh, you know, in many cases, they, they made you do it anyway. So, yeah, there were some marketers that kind of stayed in that old school way of thinking, and what they didn't realize is they were just turning off the consumer. The consumer was like... Right. It did more harm than good. Yeah, it did a lot more harm than good. Hmm. They saw it as better than doing nothing, and I'm like, actually, no, you're going backwards. <laughs> so... Um, so that's changed. You asked me what's changed. It has evolved 1,000%. You have marketers that are doing it right, McDonald's, AT&T. You know, um, there are, actually, there's, there are a number of great marketers, especially the car marketers. And now they're looking for insights. And they're looking for what, what commonalities you have. So not just looking at it demographically, but psychographically. So if I'm talking to you, I'm going to say, well, hey, all three of us love podcasts, you know, but we also all love being outdoors. So... That's one tribe I'd like to speak to, and they're not all Hispanic, right? But I may say, but all Hispanics who like those two things, I can cluster them and target them. So if you want demographics, I can give it to you, but built around psychographics. That's a big thing right now is being more meaningful and impactful with your message. And obviously, if, I'm, if I resonate with you as a brand, you're more likely to, you know, um, to buy my, my product or service. I just read that the Spanish-speaking podcasting is on a huge oh, trajectory right now. Major. Yeah. You know, I mean, people spend a lot of time in their cars. They were listening to music before, and music is still huge with us, even just, you know, terrestrial radio. But now that you have podcasts and people have smartphones, it's like you give them the content, build it, and they will come. Yeah. And that's what's happening. It's good. Fantastic. Good for the market. We're talking about a change in your industry, but also, and this is a, a common theme on this show, the changes in Austin. Sure. And your native You've seen it all. What are some of the trends you've seen? What, what w- is good? What's promising? What's bad? Oh, man. 
what can oh. we fix? <laughs> I'll add to that. I, I just saw not long ago the homes going up around Johnston High. Wild, isn't it? Seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, million dollar homes. Million dollar homes. Yeah. It's mind blowing to it uh, yeah go, elaborate on what's happening in your neighborhood, um, your old neighborhood. So in East Austin, good, bad, what we can change, et cetera. Look, I think the good is that um, Austin's always been a creative place. You know, it was a different type of creative place when my dad was growing up. I think we have a creative culture that continues to attract more creative people to the city because they know they can come here and create whatever they want, whether it's a brand, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a clothing line, whatever. And other people are going to pitch in to help them. So that is, that is a positive thing. I love living in a creative city. That's what I loved about New York. But that creative class is also coming in with a little bit of money. Hmm. And so what has changed is that the creative class wants to live in the city. They don't want to live too far out. And so they want to live in the city. So they said, well, I can't afford Terrytown, Can't afford Bolden Creek as much, but I can't afford East Austin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, that's the, it happens around the country. You know, the creative class will always find a place that is a more affordable. And once they get into a place like East Austin, you know, maybe a little bit of parent money helps and they fix up the house and they, they don't think they're doing anything bad. And maybe they're not in their mind. But then that drives the property values up because of the way we structure you know, tax and property values in the state of Texas. So, you know, uh, you have a lot of people, like I was telling you before, that are still on fixed incomes. People like my grandma when she was living there, my Uncle Johnny, he was on retirement. My grandma had Social Security. And so um, the taxes go up. Something else has got to give, you know. No more new car, no more eating out twice a week. Something gives. And if you have children, it's even worse. So uh, we saw a rapid change. I mean, I saw it all happen from the beginning. And, you know, it's a desirable part of town to live in. It's the most gentrified area zip code 78702 is the most gentrified zip code in america mm. especially in the last five years in the last five years yeah. and that's now uh trickled over to metopolis so pretty much all of east austin whether it was african-american or hispanic east austin has changed dramatically almost becoming unrecognizable to people like myself who are from here born and raised and my dad you know so you feel a sense of sadness and a sense of loss almost a sense of of loss the way you lose a loved one, you're like, we've lost this community, you know? Even though the community's still there, we're spread out as a diaspora, right? Where it might be in Buda, Kyle, Pflugerville, mm. we're still there, but if we're not in the same place, seeing each other day in and day out, you feel the loss of the place, but not necessarily the people. Well, what you described, you, you, they all lived on the same street. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> At one point. Yeah. And I'll add to this, because I, you know, I, I don't do it as much as uh, I used to, but I was a runner, and... If you if you were a distance runner, you would run the whole trail yeah. to the Longhorn Dam to to Austin High, right? What most Austinites did not know until recently, you know, the boardwalk helped with that, is that side of Lady Bird Lake before the Longhorn Dam is the most beautiful part right. yeah. of by far of Lady Bird Lake. That's right. What do you think when you, when you see all that? Because if I go on a run and I don't see that little Hispanic fruit cart. At oh, the yeah. end there yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on uh, Pleasant Valley, I'm yep. going to be bummed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, we laugh. We don't laugh as much because now it's become common, but uh, we used to laugh when we would see people running. We're like, who are those people running? You know? <laughs> uh, who are those people walking dogs? Right. We used to laugh. And there was yeah. a guy that used to hang out at Rabbit's and uh, one of the regulars there, Rabbit's Bar, back when it was open, and he said, you know, we didn't walk our dogs. The dogs walked themselves, you know? <laughs> and he saw, and it's true, he saw a lot of dogs walking around, but... Uh, it became like strange to us to see 
young people jogging, walking their kids on strollers. And I mean, even in the middle of the night, we're like, hey, man, you know, it gets dark. We're already, you know, kind of settling back in the neighborhood. And and you weren't scared because you knew everybody, but you're just more like more uh, out of out of maybe um, just just I don't know, just something you did. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's that's what makes it kind of unrecognizable because you're like, I guess we could have done this, but too busy working yeah yeah so. i'll paint another picture for you in my my memories of of where you, of east austin is also i got really into cycling and we would do these big group rides down to san marcus go east come back up and come through your neighborhood right yeah. come oh, through yeah. east austin the heart of east austin you know we'd leave at 8 a.m come back at noon one o'clock these long rides and the smell of barbecue Oh, yeah. From every park and backyard <laughs> was just inc- – and you're starving because you yes. just rode for four or five hours. That's right. It was like one of my favorite things about East Island is rolling in. It just would hit you. Like you just wanted to pull over and go, can I join you guys for lunch? I'm dying here. <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, when I asked my dad, I said, Dad, what do you miss most about East Austin you knew growing up? And he said, well, he goes, you know, I miss the people. He goes, but, man, he goes, you know, we would be all over town – working or, or playing, you know, depending on what age he was. He said, but when we came back to East Austin, he goes, and there, there were a lot of dirt roads at the time. He goes, when we came back to East Austin, you knew you were home because every person's mom or grandma was making homemade tortillas, homemade beans, and some other type of food, but you could smell, everybody had their windows open. <laughs> so you walked down this dirt road and you smelled everybody's cooking. Yeah. And it was just the perfect aroma. And he said, uh, he said that was every night because we didn't eat out. So... You know, you knew what everybody was cooking by walking the streets. Oh, I know. I can, I can, I can smell it right yeah, now just yeah. by remembering it. We're going to have to have you back sometime, oh, whatever you want to talk about. But I, th- I think we could wrap this episode up with this. Uh, how are not necessarily you, you, your family, friends, working to preserve what's left? Yeah. Look, I think there are a lot of other people that are doing a lot of great work to preserve. And if you're talking about East Austin specifically or Austin or our family legacy, I don't really know. But um, East, East Austin culture, this culture we're yeah. talking about. I was telling Michael, I said, there are kids that are probably, and I say kids, they're not kids, adults that are 10 years younger than me, maybe 15 years, that have a lot of heart to preserve what they've learned of East Austin, what they've experienced as East Austinites, and what they want to see for the future. They're doing that by preserving, you know, the car culture that exists that's always been a part of East Austin and South Austin, for that matter. I think there are some people, and I know some of these people personally, that are working really hard to make sure that they're included in toy drives, that they're included in, you know, things that are done at Festival Beach, Fiesta Gardens, or in Chicano Park. Um, you know, I, they're doing a great job of, of keeping that culture alive um, for East Austin and for kind of generations to come. I think where the struggle is when you think of East Austin, you think of food, too. And um, a lot of the businesses can't afford to be back in East Austin with rent. So... Or the, their property taxes, they're getting, the businesses yeah. are getting taxed. Yeah, out. yeah. So you have very, I mean, at one point, we could pick 10 restaurants to go eat at on a dime. And now you can't because there are only a few. So, you know, you go out to South Austin, you go out to Buda, Kyle, Lockhart, you know, to find good Tex-Mex or whatever. Give us a couple of the still existing today favorite picks that, yeah. uh, that, no, that make you nostalgic. Number one, Joe's Bakery. Oh, yeah. Joe's Bakery yeah. in East 7th Street. Been around forever. The Avila family, and in this case now the Maciel and Estrada family, that, that's the daughter and granddaughter that run it with their grandmother and their aunt. So it's three names. They continue to keep the great food coming. It's, when you go there, you're eating 
what you might eat at grandma's house or mom's house. You know, homemade tortillas, homemade carne asada, homemade barbacoa. I mean, everything is homemade. You know, um, like every restaurant, there are people that there are people that say eh, that's not my favorite. My favorite is X, but that's my favorite. And you know, there's Angie's. Angie's is mm-hmm. over on uh, East Seventh Street, also. Angie started actually working for another person who used to own Taco Village and started her own restaurant. She has the best puffy tacos and enchiladas, for that matter. She does homemade corn tortillas. So she's still around, and she has great food. You still have more Mexican fare versus Tex-Mex, uh, Los Comales on East 7th oh, Street. Yeah. You've got the uh, Cisco's. Cisco still serves up. I mean, different owners. You know, it's, it's the grandson now, but uh, still the same feel. You know, got those mm-hmm. great fluffy biscuits. You know, the migas there are great. You know, still feels the same inside, which is great. You've got – and then you got some new stuff. I mean, if you're talking about the old stuff, I, I'd left out one. Tamale House is there, and it used to be different names. Uh, it used to be Mexico Tipico, and then the younger generation reopened Tamale House. But, um, you know, they're still around. I know I'm forgetting probably somebody key. <laughs> uh, Dan's Hamburgers. I know it's not Mexican food, but yeah. Dan's has been there since probably the 60s or 70s, and that's where you went to get – to me, one of the best burgers in town. What's it's, fun about making you answer this question is your phone's going to blow up from your family. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you mention so-and-so? Oh, I know, I know. I'm, and, and again, I'm probably missing, you know, some very critical restaurants that I'm not naming. But, you know, Joe's Bakery comes to mind. Okay. I, I want to end on an upbeat note and say I liked what I heard about the young people trying to recover parts of the history at least they're interested in history. And this is what this yeah. Austin Found podcast is all about. My columns are about and so forth. And that's encouraging. Yeah. It may not end up being what they want at a given moment, what of life ever is, <laughs> but they are paying attention to history in a way that is really encouraging. Yeah. And you know, I, I would just add to that, Michael, that it, it's history. I don't know if it's, it's legacy via history. Uh, They're trying to keep the legacy that was built. And I think, you know, I look at, there's a young lady, Monica Maldonado. She started up this really cool deal where she's promoting uh, Latino art. So I think history and legacy is being created in different verticals, right? Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's through the car culture, whether it's through, you know, visual art, whether it's through music, food, and, and just oral history, just books, writing. I think there are different people that are taking it upon themselves to say, the younger ones, we want to preserve this piece of it. Mm. But altogether, it's Can you take over this podcast for us? Because <laughs> you're better at it than we are. <laughs> I think I could be a guest <laughs> as long as I don't talk your ears off. Sorry about that. <laughs> you can be a guest anytime. I appreciate anytime. you guys. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. Really cool. Lonnie Lamont, thank you. <laughs> thank you, guys. And thanks for tuning in to Austin Found. Happy trails. Happy trails.